So, Max, how are you doing today? You know, fine. Pandemic life. Pandemic life is is pretty brutal. Something even more brutal happened where we were going to do an episode on the unis, uh, which is a new proposal from the Modern Money Network, uh, which we'll talk about probably in a future episode, but would basically be using cool MMT powers to make uh, universities uh, self-financing in an emergency kind of way that would politicize and put uh, Federal Reserve um, payment support uh, on the spot and make it intuitive to people. So listeners have that to look forward to. Uh, But the reason that we're not doing that today is because there is a new publication that started that is just so in the wheelhouse for us. This is like, I wish that this publication had existed when we did the first episode, laying out our, you know, kind of critique of scarcity Marxism leading to this kind of exclusionary eco-fascism, which is obviously a theme, but here, this is going to be another media episode. And this publication that came out is called The Bellows. I love it so much. Please give me like straight into my whatever I don't know veins. I think yeah, Whatever yeah. I'm gonna go into blow my the ears. bellow into your face, which which yeah. turns out is a uh, a bellow. I didn't know this, but is one of those little things that you uh, blow at a chimney uh, or th- that you blow at a fireplace to like move the ashes around and stuff. So it just it's kind of the perfect. Um, it, it's really what media is. For all of these people is just is just force and like a gust of like a bellowing of class pain or something like that. It puts out the fire of capitalism, which is ultimately, as we talked about in uh, episodes two and four, which kind of unpicked some of the logics of we are the virus and you know, basically the only way to stop capitalism and stop environmental degradation is just to stop everything. So this is kind of like what the bellows is trying to do is they're trying to blow out the superstructure and they're trying to blow out identity politics, uh, as they understand it and, uh, blow out the margins and make room for, a majority of quote-unquote normal people whose interests are material and objective and not, you know, needlessly political, like gender reassignment surgery or something that couldn't possibly be a right, you know, for, for the majority of people. Another way of thinking about this, which being me, I have to take it to its most pretentious place. It's uh, the bellows is essentially an attempt to blow out the, the candle that is the Cartesian metaphor of the wax melting to the floor. So bye-bye subjectivity. Here we come. We're all uh, we're all class objects now. <laughs> we're all class objects now. And so I wanted to start with just reading their their about page. So the bellows. First of all, first observation and readers readers at home, listeners at home can follow along at thebellows.org. Uh, I'm looking forward to us being like 20% of all of their web traffic so far. Thank, well, thank goodness it's a .org. We, we weren't sure if, if it was going to come through uh, as, a, as an official organization or not. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, um, it's .org and like the most kind of yeah. imminent. It's bellows.base. 
bellows.base. Jesus. The base <laughs> is probably what the name of this should be, except that's an actual white supremacist organization. Yeah, um, and, and Al-Qaeda. Um, yeah, funny coincidence that white supremacists and Al-Qaeda love the metaphor of the material base of the population is this kind yeah. of class that is being liberated from the cultural agenda. Anyway, we're going to get into all of that. Yeah, but well, I have to I have to do one more stupid joke. So it's oh, bellows.boden. That's the that's the actual website <laughs> that you can follow Bowden. along. Okay, Mr. German, do you want to um you want to Don't call me Mr. Bowden? German. Um <laughs> bellows.ground. Um, yeah. <laughs> Bellows.soil.blood. Um, yeah. So actually the first thing that I notice is that it all looks very like Jacobin or Tribune like, and something that's kind of notable. Uh, I have no idea what the story is with this, but the day that the Bellows came out on Twitter, they had under literally under a thousand followers. There's like a nobody account, um, like us. <laughs> <laughs> but they had immediately Bhaskar Sankara um, sharing their articles. Uh, there was an article that they wrote about DSA that I would assume based on the other articles that I read is complaining that DSA is like too friendly of a place for like minorities and marginalized people. And that's like alienating inherently to the lizard brain of the working class. Um, but yeah, Bhaskar Sankara immediately shared that. Michael Brooks of the Michael Brooks show immediately shared the first article that I wanted to read from them, which is called Unpacking the Left's Cultural Baggage. Uh, but first, yes, starting with the about page. So who we are. This is a key moment for the left in America. Ordinary people are souring on capitalism. I love ordinary people here. What, what do you think ordinary people means? Ordinary people are the people that are in the factories uh, producing Jacobin magazine. <laughs> uh, <laughs> ordinary people are souring on capitalism and neoliberalism, and more are ready to fight in what's been a one-sided class war against the poor and working class. Meanwhile, today's media sites haven't adjusted to new realities. What passes for much of left media these days are sites obsessed with identity, geared towards radical liberals, and embrace the worst aspects of cancel culture, or read like dry academic journals. It's just not enough. We want to be class warriors, not social justice warriors. We want free speech. I love that last Ooh, line. Yeah. It's like, if you didn't realize what we are. Yeah, we're just. We, we, we just want free speech. Yeah, like, there, there's actually we, a photo of Ben Shapiro in the margin here. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want social, like SJ dubs. We want class war. And by class war, we, it means we want to be able to offend you with our working class aesthetic sensibilities. That's what we want. With our caricature of working class aesthetic sensibilities, which comes from the base. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so like the move that they're already doing, which is going to be, I think, present in every single article that they do, is conflating marginalized people's interests with neoliberal interests through focusing only on neoliberal co-optations of the language used by activists. So here they say... Left media sites today are obsessed with identity geared towards radical liberals, which is now going to be the new, you know, you're a neoliberal. You're basically Hillary Clinton in 2016 if mm -hmm. you want to talk at all about 
any cultural dimension of justice and inclusion and all of these things that they believe are strictly economic. Well, because culture and identity is like a backpack you wear, you know, (laughs) you have to just unpack. We have to like, you know, take, take it off our backs and unpack it and like look through all this superfluous stuff so that we can really be our bare selves without a backpack. Right. And it's, it's actually for them, I think it's probably a sign of privilege that you even have a culture in the first place, because that means that you're not working class because you have time for thoughts. Yeah. You have a to me uh, culture. You have a t- <laughs> I'm going to redo this joke. Um, I'm leaving that in. <laughs> oh, fuck you. Yeah. Um, no, we're rolling. <laughs> you have a to me uh, cultural backpack that you bought uh, on discount at TJ Maxx as a leftist. That was that was good. It was a long wind up, but I like yeah. that. Yeah, it's it's the story of my life. <laughs> so, right, we want free speech. And we are certain that there are others out there tired of ineffective and theatrical politics, more interested in symbolism, moral outrage, and deplatforming than actual material improvement for the vast majority of people. Oh, man, symbolism. That famous thing that uh, has nothing to do with material uh, improvement in our material lives no it's not like we really have anything that's symbolic that's mediating these structures at all we can just ignore it it's fine yeah workers don't even use symbolic language communication when they go on strike it's it's like their their hard hats start to glow and that instinctively tells the other workers that it's time for a spontaneous non-thinking wildcat strike it's workers they what they do is that thing that like straight guys do where they don't want to hug each other and so they like jump in the air and like pound their chests against one another as if yeah. that's somehow less uh homoerotic or something it's the best way for them to get rid of their surplus <laughs> <laughs> you know you don't want you don't want the surplus to to calcify into identity politics you want that, to just beat it out of each other basically well i mean okay we're gonna not go down this line of thinking uh anyway uh <laughs> <laughs> so who we are We are a pair of journalists based in Chicago and New York with collected bylines in Jacobin in these times, The Guardian, The Nation, and other publications. So obviously this line is positioning themselves. Jacobin and In These Times are first, you know, so all of the leftist media, you know, we're veterans of leftist media. They all accept us. And then The Guardian and The Nation to show that they have a mainstream appeal too. Yeah. And they're making inroads into the... uh, you know, into the mainstream culture. (sighs) Yeah. So the two people uh, who are listed as the founding editors are Ryan Zitgraf and Edwin Aponte. Uh, Ryan Zitgraf has written a couple of things in Jacobin and wrote, I think, the first article here. Um, Edwin Aponte is is some kind of academic. I, I can't really remember. He doesn't have a super big Twitter presence. Um, and then founding contributors, Austin O'Brien and Jeff Van Drew Jr. Although, as evidenced by the fact that Bosker Sankara shared it immediately the day that it was published, saying, a lot of people are really hating on this article. Like, no, they fucking weren't. Um, <laughs> a lot of people are really hating on this article. And it was an article about, like, what DSA could do differently. And he's like, but I think it makes a lot of really good points. So, you know, it's... There's definitely some kind of behind the scenes, you know, coordination like this. This was announced to <laughs> to Michael Brooks, to Bosker Sankara, to all yeah. of those kinds of people. It's it's like the thing I do when like 
my kids that I don't have like do some like shitty artwork. And I just <laughs> I just like go to the parent teacher conference and go, a lot of people have been hating on my uh on my <laughs> son's drawing of a of a man, but you know, if really if we if we look at to the margins here, we can there's actually something essential about this work of of uh, high avant-garde mid-century modern uh sculpture even though it's a it's a painting see it's yeah. doing multiple things at once anyway i'm bashkar sankara and i approve this uh signal boost <laughs> yeah and then he's like frantically trying to cross out his name at the bottom of it that he just wrote <laughs> by habit. um yeah so the first article is by uh benjamin fong who he's the he's the one that the left sort of makes fun of all the time like he's the he's the one that we're allowed to make fun of so it's kind of funny that they've included him in in the bellows <laughs> yeah in like the first batch of articles yeah <laughs> uh but he's gonna be he's our in with you the listener because you're already used to making fun of him so <laughs> unpacking the left's cultural baggage uh subtitle the 2020 primary was a stark reminder that cultural liberalism hurts the left's electoral ambitions Oof. so cultural liberalism not to be confused with cultural marxism although (laughs) if you saw three parentheses around it you might get the two confused yikes yeah so the left doesn't quite know what to do with liberalism on the one hand we're keen to critique certain aspects of liberal nonsense like lean-in feminism or the absurdities of the new york times but we've also strangely accepted the contemporary culture of liberalism as having moral authority as if it somehow floats free from liberals general political interests This cultural liberalism, which demands intersectional thinking and deferential behavior in accordance with reified social identities, dominates progressive activist circles. There's a contradictory logic at play here. Social liberalism is about tolerance, about not infringing on the freedom of others. But modern cultural liberalism functions as the opposite, compelling people to act in accordance with one's own expectations. So here you have freedom in the second paragraph which you know we did an episode on jacobin and how obsessed they are with the free lock-in individual and what they see themselves as doing is redeeming the european enlightenment basically redeeming the objective parts of it and getting rid of the racism that couldn't have possibly had anything to do with what i'll say is a reified freedom Right. Because Mm -hmm. the problem with this notion of freedom as being this primordial base from which individuals are, you know, contracting into a society and producing together and all of these things is that in in the real world, in the material world, there's no such thing as an individuated person who is not already being mediated by culture, symbolic representation, by arrangements by social coordination by simply being born into a world that existed before them right Mm -hmm. one thing i want to say about this ben fong like start the thinking of these like reified what he's calling these reified cultural categories just to concretize this he's talking about like pronouns right like yeah he this is like jordan peterson shit like no we shouldn't be worried about other people's feelings because I shouldn't have to deal with subsuming myself to your cultural preferences and identifications, right? Uh, this is about working class struggles. It's not about some sort of 
like liberal project of inclusion that makes me part of a society. He didn't ask to be born, okay? <laughs> I mean, to call that out, right? Like to think about cultural liberalism, which yeah, I mean, essentially as you said, it's it's this it's it's this otherization like cultural marxism. I, I just keep coming back to the fact that there's this un, there's this acknowledgement of a sort of insistence upon a sort of objective realm of politics right that somehow transcends as you were suggesting these symbolic activities of the way representation and image all are jointly mediating structures of relation and to even imagine that the symbolic somehow is actively asserting itself, and I hesitate to even say itself, um, onto <laughs> the sort of material structures and actively shaping the way we materially relate. It's at both obvious to them and, the, and they hate it, but also then completely unthinkable too, because they are the ones reifying it. Yeah. In an imaginary, right? They're calling it a reified cultural like sphere, but they are the ones reifying it. And that, and like, and if if quote unquote like postmodern, poststructural Marxism teaches us anything, it's that this is it's not reified. It's been reified, and we need to right detach it from that thingness. And acknowledge its sociality and its relationality in order to transvalue it, to rearticulate the symbolic in ways that then rearticulate the material realm. Yeah, we're always already dealing with everything that they think of as superstructure that the economic base is for them prior to, you know, mm -hmm. that's always something that not only was constructed in the first place before they reified it, you know, like it was the fact that they have this idea of essentially this is the silent majority argument, you know? Yeah. The fact that they believe in taxpayer money and in zero sum thing like money where there's a finite amount of it that comes from finite human activities. What that means is that as soon as they've reified the political body and declared some people on the margins of it, then they have a basis to then say that something like gender reassignment surgery is inherently, inherently for them at the expense of some other thing that we could be doing with that taxpayer money. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I just think we're trying to analogize the zero-sum view of money that they have with the zero-sum view of culture and belonging and everything that they have. But I think it's also important to say that in terms of, like, the hierarchy of these kind of zero-sum formations, the zero-sumness of money for them, culture is going to conform to that, you know? Uh, right. Everything about the way that the society is set up is going to have to conform to that because that's the only means by which we can organize ourselves at a distance. So as, as long as that's finite, then suddenly you've created a distributional conflict over belonging and over identity. And that's really ultimately yep. what class struggle is for them, is a kind of distributive conflict. But going back to what you were saying, it's not just that the reality that they're reifying was itself created before they reified it, but 
this problem of creation itself is older than anything else. <laughs> you know, there, <laughs> we were never not contesting our mode of social coordination and all of the overlapping modes of social coordination that exist in the world. You know, like that is something that is inherent to politics as a problem. And it's why politics itself, while politics is inherently intertwined with power, it is not reducible to power. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. not. Because the problem of collective interdependence, collective coordination, collective uh, symbolic representation as a means to coordinate people's actions, that is prior to what we think of as power. It constitutes power, but it is not reducible to power. Mm -hmm. You know, we probably should keep reading uh, more <laughs> from the bellows because there's going to be some more gems throughout. Yeah. But one thing I also wanted to say is like, just to like tie this conversation to a lineage of thought, like this has been a problematic in thinking about the way that symbolic relations are like inscribed with, upon, and and through material relations and you know i was i've been reading some german media theory you know because i'm I, i'm who i am and um <laughs> there friedrich kittler who's one of the like founders of german media theory talked about how language like modern language is a virus from another planet <laughs> and you know i mean i think this is such a rich uh, terrible formulation in a way of sort of getting at what we've been talking about in all of this. It's like what Fong is means by cultural liberalism is essentially he's articulating the a sort of other relation for all modes of symbolic relations, right? Literally in the sense that the symbolic has come from another planet and it's colonized our you know, that's the key, our, quote unquote. <laughs> right. Uh, the very immediate hour that actually refers to a specific territorialized group of people. Right. Our class antagonism. And it's like mystical powers have blunted the potency of our antagonism. And this should like evoke these gendered struct like structures right in the way it's thinking you know our culture it's soft right right it's slippery whereas class is hard solid grounded right i mean this is this is like the foundation of modern understandings of gender and it's totally inherent and just baked in to these structures and that's another thing i mean you know we talk about it's another through line I think we want to develop more. And I keep saying that on the show. And I promise we're going to talk more about that. But we just keep making episodes. So we, yeah, I mean, look, there's no, we can infinitely make episodes as long as the resources and time is available. <laughs> that's, that's just MMT. And so this is something that really is just so blatantly obvious, right? It's so, it, to imagine that this is somehow edgy and any new thought is frankly embarrassing. <laughs> the whole thing is embarrassing. In terms of people who are the current power brokers in left media, I've, I've seen pretty much radio silence on this. Uh, ranging from radio silence to actively fucking sharing these articles. It's just embarrassing. Well, Bhaskar Sankara is the third rail of the left ecosystem because if you're going to make it in the left or on, if you're going to sort of cultivate a large Twitter following, you can't uh, criticize Jacobin 
because then you'll be cut off from those networks of symbolic <laughs> signal boosting. You know, it's funny how that works, isn't it? How the symbolic becomes a mechanism by which ideas get materially and concretely uh, cut off. But anyhow. Yeah, Jacobin is the base from which that grows. And that's the difference, <laughs> Max, is that you're a detached alien talking about language. But Jacobin, they have, they have donors. They're grounded. Oh my god. Yeah. So we need to make a Patreon. They have taxpayers, is what it is. <laughs> they do. <laughs> yeah, so moving on. There are theoretical problems with intersectionality and the ascriptive hierarchies upon which it relies. But my concern here is practical, not academic. Again, ascriptive <laughs> hierarchies, that probably, I'm guessing, let me just put my mouse over it. Yep, that uh, links to Marx, Race, and Neoliberalism by Adolf Reed. It is basically superstructure, identity, all of these things are ascribed identities from imminent people somewhere in the base. It all comes from the base people. It's not floating. It's all just blood and soil talking to you. So the ascriptive hierarchies upon which it relies, but my concern here is practical, not academic. If we are to accept the polls, the adoption of cultural liberalism has devastating political consequences. So, you know, accept the polls. I mean, that's more kind of silent majority stuff. And then, oh, yeah, there you go. The broad majority of people in America are on board with the left's economic policy and support liberal social ideals. Most people like the substance of what the left champions, and that should be a very encouraging sign. What they don't like, and I mean really don't like, are the many forms of cultural policing and identitarian thinking. Yeah, not at all like the cultural policing that is telling marginalized people to shut up because their interests are at odds with the majority of workers. Not that kind of policing. That's Yeah, that's not cultural policing. No, that's dictatorship of the proletariat for them. There's no police in a dictatorship of the proletariat. <laughs> so <laughs> this is because they take intersectional moralizing to reflect, quote, not so much genuine concern for social justice as the preening display of cultural superiority. So again, moralizing, preening, squawking, just all of these kinds of words that are, you know, these these nags who won't shut up and let, let the boys listen to their class interests. So hold the fuck on. Wait a second. <laughs> like, he's talking about, like, Black Lives Matter, right? Like, that has to fit into that schema for him. Oh, totally. Yeah. Right? Like, it's preening... Oh, this just cultural policing so we that they can establish superiority. To properly internalize this, people die in the fucking street. And Ben Fong, when people start yelling about that and start <laughs> like trying to cut off the logics that produce these hierarchies and these fucking patriarchal white supremacist structures through an ongoing practice of symbolic oppression, Ben Fong is saying that, oh, they're just trying to establish their superiority and obscriptive hierarchies. Because you know what? If you actually look to the value form and the MCM circuit, you can see all the racism in, in between the M, the C, and the M. It's all there, folks. All the racism's right there. Don't worry about it. Yeah, you just, you just described the name racism to it, but it's actually classism. Fucking Jesus Christ. Yeah. People also generally despise ever-evolving constraints on thought and discourse. Yeah, it's so, like, can you believe that the culture just keeps evolving? That's how you know it's fake, <sighs> is that it's just ever-evolving. There's always somebody. Look, the base the base evolves at a sort of more, like, in deep time, you know? We're think we have to think Darwinian here. The base evolves very slowly, whereas culture, it evolves too quickly, folks. 
I don't know what quick. to tell you. It's too quick. I don't like it. And when it does evolve, it's not natural. And I'm not going to elaborate on that because I don't have to. <laughs> so <laughs> in sum, the left rightly affirms liberal social aims, but somehow we've made the mistake, perhaps from a lack of a lack of confidence in the socialist project, middle class anxieties, or not, or just not having the energy to deal with liberals calling us names of thinking we need to adopt cultural liberalism to do so. So, you know, the kind of self-hatred, you know, we're, we're middle class here, but it's okay. We're redeeming ourselves. Look, everyone knows that uh, people who are working class in their nature, like at, in their physical composition, um, <laughs> they don't care about other people. That's just the nature of being working class. Yeah, because you have real material problems. Other people are superstructure. You have material problems. And this has nothing to do with the fact that I, said writer, uh, who may have been uh, lower class at one point, was uh, traumatized by someone who didn't care about me. And I've ascribed his agency to all of fucking capitalism because that's the only thing that could be a reason for any of this. And so we have to really speak to uh, the lower class as if, they're an amorphous blob of material injury rather than anybody with feelings. Like, honestly, come on. The projection that's going on here where they're like talking down to both the SJ dubs who uh, only care about feelings and the working class at the same time through their own self-hatred is just infuriating and disgusting. And fucking sad. Yeah. It's Christ. really sad to read. It's like, who who hurt you? Yeah, seriously. Yeah, so they said, there's nothing about liberal cultural modes that prepares one to fight for liberal social aims, uh, which we know by the fact that liberals abide by them. And we shouldn't, given the wild unpopularity across demographic groups of liberal cultures. So yeah, then, you know, there's, there's some really complex statistical race science to show that they're, <laughs> you know, across all demographic groups. People actually, you know, don't care about racism. They, they care about the oppression of their class bodies or something. Yeah. Look, if Bernie would have just taken uh, race out of his platform, he would have done just as like so much better in South Carolina. <laughs> and, you know, the evidence for that is the Pete Buttigieg campaign. Yeah. The evidence for that is that he won in 2016. <laughs> and, and meanwhile, Bernie absolutely crushed in Nevada on a intersectional platform, right? With yeah. spe a specific coming together of incentivizing votes for him based on both material interests and symbolic representational interests, right? I mean, so to, to even play the numbers game is so ridiculous and silly but it's fine. The left needs more Nate Silvers. Oh, yeah. And there's so many people vying for the for the spot of who's going to be the left's Nate Silver. My favorite is Ryan Grimm. <laughs> no, we, we can't attack Ryan Grimm. Ryan Grimm is on the inside of the circle of intercept columnists who are good. He, he's the union rep for uh, the left leftist media in the Beltway. The Beltway is a great place to be in media if you're like you know, marginalized in any way. You have Ryan fucking Grimm on your side <laughs> <laughs> representing you objectively, you know, representing your material interests, not your feelings. So I just want to move along to the next article. And I wanted to really read a lot of these, but they're all going to be really similar. And I think that it's probably better if we just do two of them. 
So uh, the next one is neoliberalism can only offer faux populism. When it comes to oh, mass yeah. politics, neoliberalism is smoke and mirrors. Um, this one is by Ted Matrakas, uh, who, don't know, don't care. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> over the last decade, economic leftism emerged as a real threat to the neoliberal capitalist consensus, as seen in both Occupy Wall Street and the two Bernie Sanders presidential campaigns. But almost as soon as it began, this leftist insurgency failed. Why? Because left populism was unable to fully distinguish itself from neoliberalism and therefore could not achieve the escape velocity needed to establish a new common sense, imagine a new horizon, and open up a coherent collective vision. So I think what's really important about this is we need um, Elon Musk to really uh, extend this metaphor and actually provide us with the technology to escape neoliberalism's velocity. Elon Musk, by the way, who wrote on Twitter like yesterday, we need to cancel cancel culture. You yeah. Know, I mean, if, if I were to use the tactics of the bellows, I would say that this is proof that the bellows are in league with Elon Musk. And you know, you know what, though? Uh, there's nothing neoliberal about Elon Musk. I, I will I will hold firm here. Elon Musk represents the true interests of the working class base because he rejects cancel culture and that is that is really important to understand like if you tweet a rose a red rose and you reject cancel culture you're a socialist that's that's just how it works that's that's mathematics <laughs> especially if you if you grew up in apartheid south africa and don't like to talk about it well well look you you know you're closer to the base like that's where that's where the struggle happens will right he was so close to production he he literally owned the mine. I mean, how much more of a angle socialist can you be? He's like a one man working class who took <laughs> over the mine. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so people know they aren't being paid what they're worth, but that their work is alienating and that there are enough resources to go around for everyone to live a dignified life. This common sense constantly seeks to assert itself. But the, prim- but the primacy of identity and personal narrative have obscured the much more determining category of economic class. Neoliberalism, the present political project of the capitalist class, which again is, is another, you know, these people always talk about neoliberalism like it is just like a, a, it's just the latest fever dream of capitalist objective class interests. No, no, like this was an ideological project that was radically... Uh, constructivist redefined everything in the world as a market that is also like a brain and a supercomputer, <laughs> you know, instead of an allocative device between rational agents. Under neoliberalism, there is no rationality because we're all just inputs into the market. A uh, good person to read on this um, as an aside is Philip Murawski, although unfortunately he, I wouldn't be surprised if we see him in the bellows one day. <laughs> Look, look, it's fine. We have Quinn's Libidian, and he also falls, like, within the realm of people we can affirm. So the circle of of left ecosystem that's good, you know, Murawski might be on the margins, but there's always Quinn's Libidian. So um, importantly, if we want to reify neoliberalism in a way that speaks to our personal leftists' uh, sensibilities, just read Quinn's Libidian. Oh yeah, a- anybody who has the word globalists in their title in the title of their book is obviously a friend of the international proletariat. 
I also want to take a little digression. The, the premise of this is like everyone understands that they are underpaid and that their value, like it's like everyone understands the mechanisms of surplus value generation. Wait, wait, what? <laughs> wait a second. Hold on. Yeah, right. The whole problem with neoliberalism as an ideology is it makes the entire surplus value framework illegible because everybody is an entrepreneur of themselves and human capital. Yeah, it's like you start from the fact, well, neoliberalism doesn't exist. So (laughs) neoliberalism should be easy to overturn if we just adhere to common sense. But the problem is, is that when you go talk to people who work, right? I don't don't even want to talk about a working class because I think that's just like honestly a coherent concept at this point. Um, People don't believe that they are not getting paid for what they produce, right? Like, which is not a totalizing, like not to say it in a way that's totalizing, like some people know they're not being paid enough. But like the problem is, is people don't see themselves as more than their work as an input generates into a system and that becomes a naturalized relation and that's an idea and like if we start from the fact well like yeah you know like everyone has read the first three chapters of capital and that's common sense and the problem is is that we haven't exactly uh spoken to everyone's natural intuitive understanding of their own marxism and if we just do that then we'll have an international global working class and my name is uh gramsci and i approve this message (laughs) the entire basis is so naive and childish like they think they're the ones that are being practical but they come out and say like yeah it's just common sense everyone's uh, marxist and we just have to like not do all this racist racism bullshit and not like speak to trying to fix that and if we do that we can have the perfect utopia where we silence the margins and deliver Medicare for all to everyone, but only in and through the white man's right. agency. Yeah. Have you ever heard of a working class person sleep? They recite the first three chapters of Capital, even if they haven't read it. <laughs> Snoring is uh, the new language of the working class. Yeah, that's, that's bellowing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so... Yeah, neoliberalism, the present political project of the capitalist class, was a response to the New Deal era of reform and was designed to claw back those concessions made for the common good. It relies first and foremost on the deregulation of big business, the lowering taxes on corporations and the wealthy, and the financialization of the economy. One thing that's really important to remember, everyone, that before Reagan got elected, um, finance wasn't a word that meant anything. And um, especially like, yeah, like, Hilferding didn't write a book called Finance Capital. And even if he did, that was science fiction about the 1980s. So that's important to remember that we can't think about finance until it's too late and we've already been alienated from our immediate uh, relationship between labor and capital, which we swear we hate. Uh, We hate it so much that we miss the good old days of direct class antagonism. So financialization of the economy, i.e. banks gaining an outsized influence over the entire economy and society, something that was not the case until the second half of the 20th century. Um, what? <laughs> Wait. <laughs> okay, hold on, hold on. 
even if you're a Marxist, this, there's oh my god, sorry, I, my brain is breaking here. No, it was. Do they really think that banks got invented <laughs> in 1980s? Like that, I was just making like that was a bit. Well, they they just <laughs> they weren't invented in the 1980s, but in the 1980s, that was when capitalism evolved enough that they they really came into form. And, you know, they they first started doing it leading up to World War II. And then there were all kinds of really great populist movements that targeted bankers specifically in the 1930s (laughs) that, um, you know, I'm I'm sure we can talk about. Uh, (laughs) But I mean, that's it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. I mean, if to to think about banks as a sort of as individuated entities of of capital that are outside the grasp of law. Um, that then assert themselves back in like as of as a virus that infects the base i mean like it's the same thing that we, i was talking about with language right and it's this imagination of an other yeah. that then asserts itself back onto a class and alienates them from nature and i mean you know it's not like marx didn't write an essay called on the Jewish question, right? So it's important to really be critical and think through the way we think about banks. And crucially, what MMT demonstrates and these legal this legal approach demonstrates is that banks are chartered institutions of law full stop. They are not outside, mm-hmm. right? They are social entities of agency that we can, of course, critique and suggest need to be rearticulated that need to be in some cases abolished right because of of their expropriative logics but to suggest that they are somehow outside imposing in is precisely the logic of the three parentheses right it's it's exactly that it's an otherization that then calls for the rejection of the margins and it's also important not to conflate this with like the reactionary attack on the left, calling them an- anti-Semitic, like obviously in ways that in the UK and also in the US attempted with Bernie Sanders mm-hmm. were simply a centrist plot to attempt to kneecap a sort of any sense of a left project. But to also suggest that there is a lineage of red-brown anti-Semitism that needs to be accounted for in our theoretical approach to these questions. Right. A good hint that that is being done cynically rather than, you know, a real observation is if it's Zionists who are making that critique, right? Mm -hmm. Like all the people who were really, really uh, anti-Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, that was the Israel lobby, right? Yeah. And the whole idea of Israel is a territorialized base for the nation, Mm -hmm. right? And Zionist thought has always trafficked in anti-Semitic tropes. Mm -hmm. Zionist thought, you know, described European Jews and diasporic Jews as being subhuman, essentially, you know, as being like, you know, half of a Jewish person. I want to link this now to precisely what the bellows forecloses as a matter of political and cultural critique. Mm -hmm. Because where these sorts of populist Jacobin Tribune people were caught off guard, especially in the UK context, was precisely on this question of how to respond to the the bad faith Zionist 
critique of Jeremy Corbyn of of like an alleged anti-Semitism on Jeremy Corbyn's behalf, right? Because they reject cultural critique full stop. And so Jacobin and Tribune and the Bellows have no way to think critically through the mechanism of a critique of nationalism, of quote-unquote national socialism, which was another uh, sort of theme that came up in our third episode, and to try and think very critically about distinctions between diaspora and base and how through the history of Jewish intellectual thought, these things were being negotiated because instead they just say global capitalism, superstructure, bad, culture, bad. We're in the base and all of that out there, all the banks, all of it bad. And even if like at the level of affect and morals, it's important to suggest that I'm sure many of these people give them the benefit of the doubt. They're not anti-Semitic, right? They don't have the theoretical tools to actually articulate a critique of Zionism as a project because ultimately they want national populism. Yeah. Right? And they want a base, a coherent, unified base by which they can leverage their material politics. And in some sense, I think what Samuel Moyne has shown. Samuel Moyne being the. Yeah, Samuel Moyne being the Yale historian who we talked about in episode three. And you should go back and listen to that conversation about national socialism, uh, lowercase and lowercase s to really get at this. Um, (laughs) As he calls it, lowercase n, lowercase s. Big difference for him. that's, That's what he calls it, right? Yeah, big difference. What this shows is that this sort of base logic is a sort of Zionist logic. Yeah. It also hates the superstructure. Yeah, completely. And so there's no way for them to think through a response rather than just say, ignore it, reject it out of hand, reject it full stop, which was the line that we heard from a lot of people on the left in the lead up to the Corbyn election in December, which is not effective. You have to actually fight these bad faith rejections with a theoretically like a thought out and thoughtful response that addresses precisely why it's a bad faith accusation. Yeah. You know, I mean, one more thing about this idea of the base in Marxism being this very immediate, materially bounded site of production where value comes from and where ultimately taxes come from is that if value is literally coming from a literal location in in the world, this exact site of production, you know, this many taxes are representing, you know, value that was created here, value that was created here, value that was created here. That is territorialized in a way that is blood and soil. That is what blood and soil actually means. And and that's that's what words like rootedness mean. Mm-hmm. You know, it's why right wing movements, whether it's Al Qaeda, which literally means the base or the American neo-Nazi movement that is also called the base. It's why they call themselves that. They're not calling themselves superstructure, you know? Of course not, because the symbolic is what they reject because the symbolic has the capacity to be inclusive and thoughtful. Right, because they fundamentally believe that identity and belonging are zero-sum because our only means of provisioning the world are zero-sum through taxation. What that means is that the only way that they can possibly interpret inclusion of people who weren't formally included is as replacement. Right. Right. Is as ethnic replacement, as population change and demographic change 
it is structurally baked into the logic of finite value creation by a finite working class doing finite production that, you know, some people are working solely for the benefit of other people. And there are, you know, people who are moochers and people who are not moochers and all of these things. It all is structurally making room for something that would later be called anti-Semitism. You know, right. whether in certain historical contexts that has, you know, also been anti-Catholicism, mm-hmm. you know, anti, you know, like the parish is a big conspiracy that Catholics are loyal to the Pope instead of to the base. Right. Yeah. Because they can only conceive of loyalty to people besides oneself and one's own family and one's own people. Right. One's own Volk. Yeah is as something that is a betrayal because fundamentally there is just not enough for everyone. And so what that means is that we are in a distributional conflict full stop over finite resources. We're not in a conflict of creation, which is what we would argue and what we think an actual emancipatory logic of class struggle would be is a logic of opening up the power of creation and abstractly mediating production so that there's always already space for everybody. That is foreclosed completely as an option Mm -hmm. because for them, all production is not abstractly mediated in the first place. It's the abstract mediators who come in and take it. And so this, I mean, we can come back to this metaphor of cultural baggage, right? As at the level of its literary traversal of this, of its argument, it not only implies the reification of the symbolic, right? Like the reification of, of money, uh, of, of identity. There's this imagination that culture and cultural relations and these superstructural relations are a weight on the shoulder of a Puritan working class that needs to struggle for its existence, right? And so we need to shed the weight. And that fundamentally is an exclusive vision, right? And, you know, I expect that if pe- when people hear this, some of them might be skeptical about the leaps and linkages we're making with mm-hmm. regards to anti-Semitism and these sorts of things. But what I just want to ask them is... Do logics of exclusion lead to exclusion and ever more exclusion? Or can they be controlled? And that is a that is a very important question because I think those on the left and those at the bellows who propagate this vision fundamentally think we can have a little bit of exclusion as a treat mm-hmm. and then get to decide where to draw the line. But what we would suggest is the moment you allow for exclusion is the moment you've lost the political reins on inclusion and on insisting that inclusion be the starting point. And the only way that you can have a starting point that is based on inclusion, a right to be included, right? The the idea of rights being law, being superstructure, Mm -hmm. you know, the only way that you can have that is if the means by which we are coordinating the society are infinite and boundless enough to always guarantee inclusion of everyone. And for that, you need a non-zero-sum understanding of money and of spending. Money printer Gober. 